I'm going to invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as we dive further into this passage of, of Scripture, it's a beautiful book of the Bible. Love, love the book of 2 Corinthians and the, uh, how frank Paul is in living his life in light of Christ and giving us a, an inside picture of, of what he endured in, in his ministry in order to, to glorify Jesus and bless uh, others for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and it's, it's a reminder to us that when we serve the Lord, that serving the Lord is, is not always an easy road to walk, that there is, there is a cost that comes along with that, but what God ends up doing through our lives as we are surrendered to him is a beautiful ministry and a beautiful work for the sake of the gospel to the benefit of others. And, and, and Paul's reminded us in the chapter 5, chapter 6, if you remember, as we got to the end of chapter 5, verses 17 and on, Paul talks about creating within us a new work. You literally become a new creation in Christ. And the old has passed away. All things have become new in Jesus. And, and God gives you this new identity in, in chapter 20 where you're an ambassador and you're bringing about this work of reconciliation where it's acknowledging that this world is not reconciled to God, that there is sin that separates us from God. But God has created you as a new creation, sent you out as an ambassador to call people into this ministry of reconciliation where they can have a relationship with God to, thanks, thanks to what Christ has done. And verse 21 reminds us of that, that he became sin who knew no sin. Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Literally, Christ takes our sin that we might take on the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus. When the Lord looks at you this morning, he, he, he doesn't want you to sit in your, your shame and your suffering because, or your, 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 your shame and your guilt, I should say, because, or, or we could talk about suffering, but especially your shame and guilt because God has, has reconciled what has separated you from, from him. When Jesus covers your sin, he covers past, present, and future. If you want a verse for that, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. When Jesus paid for your sin, he paid for all of it. Jesus said in John 19, 30, it is, it is finished. And so God is doing this, this beautiful work in you, and God wants to do this beautiful work through you. But, but Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that with that, there is, there is a cost. If you look in, in verse 8, he reminded us of just, uh, just that struggle we might experience. There's honor, yes, but there's also dishonor. There's slander and praise, treated as impostors and yet as true, unknown yet known, dying and yet we, we live, punished and yet not killed, sorrowful yet rejoicing in verse 10, poor yet making many rich. So he's acknowledging that before the Lord, there is this beautiful position that we have, but from the perspective of the world, there is this, this sacrifice that is, that is made. There is a battle and a struggle to follow after Christ in, in this world. And a, a cost, a cost can tempt us to compromise. Every day we're faced with those sort of temptations that your identity in Jesus is something different and other than what the systems of this world might offer, and your everyday decisions, you have the opportunity to, to glorify Christ through that or to compromise that position for the things of this world. And this is where Paul brings us to in the message this morning is Paul wants to, to discuss for us how to live with an uncompromised conviction for, for the sake of Christ. Paul sees the calling of Christians as important, and rather than wanting them to, or seeing them compromise in that, Paul wants them to live differently. And so he starts in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, saying this, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. 
Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. When Paul gives us this phrase, he's giving us this line as one from, from a place of pain. He's pouring out his life and he's doing everything that God has given him the, the ability to do in order to love the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is a messed up church. In fact, there's a book called The Corinthian Catastrophe that just talks about all, out of all the New Testament churches, if you wanna talk about one of the churches that was really messed up, it's the church of Corinth. And, and Paul, Paul is just continuing to lay down his life and, and, and to love them unconditionally and, and to not let that go. And, and he's asking the same thing from the church of, of Corinth, yet they're not reciprocating in that same love towards, that, towards him. And Paul is in this passage talking about how significant that is for the body of Christ as they work together as a community, that they would have this mutual concern for the well-being of one another as they live their lives for the glory of God as a community for Christ. What's interesting is as Paul's talking about his heart being open and their heart being open towards him or encouraging their heart to be open towards him, the literal Greek translation actually doesn't say heart. Um, what Paul actually says is, this is interesting, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, our bowels are wide open. That's what Paul says. And then he says, and your bowels seem restricted, and so you need to have a better bowel, a bowel response, a better bowel movement. In verse 13, he says, in return, widen your bowels also. That's what, what Paul, and that's, that's kind of gross, so we translate it a little differently. Um, we don't like to talk about our, our, our bowels, or, or especially in, in public settings. That's an uncomfortable conversation. That's something for, you know, you get a little retired in life, maybe that's something you might achieve as a success, those kind of, those kind of things. But, but what Paul is interested in here is for the church to respond in a Christ-like way, right? Paul calls the church to love him. And I think what's important to recognize here is the reason or motivation behind why Paul asks them to do this. And it's not because Paul feels inadequate. Church, um, I really love you and I, I don't feel really important and I need you to make me feel important. And so in order to make me feel important, I, I want you to love me too. Rather, rather, what Paul is saying is, like, I've already found myself content in Christ I find my identity shaped in Jesus, but, but what Paul wants the church to recognize is that by not listening, by not listening to the Apostle Paul, they're, they're cutting themselves off from the very words of the Lord because Paul has been sent out as an apostle. And to reject the Apostle Paul is to reject the message of Christ. And so Paul sees the importance of unity in their relationship for the sake of the message that God has called him to share with the church of Corinth. And so therefore, in order to, to receive that message and communicate that with, with each other and to live uh, as a community for Christ, they need to understand what God says. And so that, that, that relationship becomes paramount to experiencing what God desires for that people as they live for, for his glory. There's an old African proverb, maybe you've heard me share it before, but it says this, if, if you wanna go fast, go alone. But if you wanna go far, go together. 
how important it is for God's people to, to live on mission, not, not as an isolated individual, but as an uncompromised community. And so point number one in your blank, if you, wanna, if you wanna live with an uncompromised conviction for Christ, what we need to do is to do that together. So, so number one is to be, be united in the Lord. Be united in the Lord, your heart wide open. Uh, when we think about this, this idea of unity, I, I think it's important to say this. Look, as God's people, we're not calling for unity for the sake of unity. The goal isn't unity. The goal is to glorify God. And sometimes if you're not careful when people talk about unity, the whole motive behind their unity is just simply unity. And unity by itself cannot stand. The whole point of unity is what's driven for the purpose of that unity. Unity eventually for the sake of unity will fall because there's nothing motivating it. And so when Paul is talking about unity here, he's not talking about unity for the sake of the unity. He's talking about unity for the cause of Christ, which we're called to as a community together. And then, and then this Paul's understanding in this passage of scripture is that, look, I, I carry the message of Christ as his, as his apostle into this world. And so the message that I carry is so sacred and important. So to deny me is to deny the very message of Christ. And we need to strive together for this cause. You see this passage, we, we realize as Paul's talking about the importance of unity, he's also recognizing that it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Meaning, meaning as, as God's people, we don't step into a community and if things don't go the way we want, just say to ourselves, oh, well, we gave it a shot and move on. Rather, what Paul's acknowledging is that because we are individuals and all of us have uh, different wants and needs within life, that we don't always strive together. And so it's important for the sake of the gospel that we work towards striving for, for what God calls us to do as his community in this pursuit, that it takes intentional effort. That an ineffective Christian is one who is often isolated and content to be simply divided. But a Christian that will make a difference is one that dives into community to be a part of what God is calling them to do collectively. And something I, I regularly like to encourage us in, in, in the state of Utah is this, this state has become, a, 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 since 2004, a very transient state, meaning since 2004, our population has grown average by about 54,000 people every year. 1,000 people a week added to the state of Utah. People come in, people go out pretty regularly. Um, half of you probably are from California, right? Like, this is how, this, this how our, our state has operated, especially as of, as of recent. But, but I want you to know, and this is very important, if, if, if you just see, um, uh, if, if Utah is a new place to you or, or if Christ is a new position that you're in in life, you find yourself as, in Jesus as a new creation and you've never even been a part of a church family before, taking time to invest in community is so sacred to what God wants us to accomplish together. And it takes time. It takes time, but it's gotta be done intentionally. In fact, statistics say when you move into a new area, it takes about two to three years before you feel like you're able to put your roots down and the people around you feel more like family or familiar. Investing in community. Now, certainly you can fast track that and you can be a little more intentional in the way that you spend time, but on average, that's about what it takes. And when you think about what God wants us to accomplish on mission together, how much more important that is, especially in this valley that we strive for that as God's people. To be united 
in the Lord. And when I think about what Alpine Bible Church has represented over the years, because like, I, I realize you know, our beginnings, God has just done just a, a beautiful thing in, in seeing a, a church building in our, in our city. This is the only freestanding church building that a, 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 a mainstream Christian church owns within our community. And it's a, a beautiful, sacred thing. as a pillar and a lighthouse here in our valley. And with each year that we have done ministry here, and we're still a, a fairly new church, but with each, ministry we've, each year we've done ministry here, God continues to to just expand the opportunities that we have. I mean, even the last couple weeks, I just mentioned in the beginning, just seeing a missions camp where we had uh, people from all over the United States come here to learn about how to reach people in the state of Utah. We had seven different states here and, and then our food pantry we run regularly and then uh, va- vacation Bible school that we had just this week. I think we had a little over 80 kids participate in that. I mean, it's, in, it's incredible to see what God is doing and what God is continuing to do, and, and just our hopes and plans for the future, which I'll, I'll share some of that with you as we get towards the later part of the summer, but it's, it's a beautiful work, and the only reason those things are able to happen is because God has brought a community, and in that community there is cooperation, and with our cooperation, it expands our opportunity to do more for the sake of the gospel in our valley. But you gotta be committed to work together. And Paul's acknowledging in this story, and, it's, and sometimes, sometimes it, it takes effort on our part because we don't always work well sometimes. Sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there's differences. But for the sake of the gospel, and by the way, I'm not saying any of this thinking that we've got any arguments happening in our church. I mean, I, I, I hear sometimes other horror stories of what happens in communities for the Lord. And I, to this point, I still drop to my knees and say, thank you, Jesus, for, for how gracious he's been to us over the years. Because I just as a community, we've, we've really worked well together and kept our eyes on what God desires to do in us and through us. So be united. Point number two, let me move on, is be distinct. Be distinct from the things of this world. He goes on and he says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. <laughs> I'll just, let me stop there and I'll read the rest of it in just a minute. But I want you to know, verse 14, this, this opening thought, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The, the rest of verses 14, 15, and 16 uh, are, are intended to uh, elevate just that phrase, right? He's, he wants us to, to think through what, what that phrase means for us. And then he goes on even further in the second half of verse 16, 17, 18. He quotes some Old Testament passages to reiterate that phrase in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now the question we should ask then is, since, since all of these verses from verse 14 down to verse 18 is intended to highlight that statement, what? What does this statement mean? Do not be unequally, unequally yoked. Well, visually, it, it automatically you can start to picture what it means to be yoked, or or not you personally, but what a, what a, what it looks for an animal to be yoked. Like if you're if you're a farmer and you've got to plow a field and you got to put two animals together, could you imagine if the if the farmer was to take like a I don't know a, a donkey and an ox and put try to put them together to plow a field, or even a, a, a horse and an ox, or I don't know, we could get crazy with this, an elephant and a dog, I don't know, but could you imagine just that how disproportionate that would be? I mean, the, certain animals would just be dangling there. And if, and if your, your yoke doesn't fit right on the animals, if you have, have two animals that walk at a different pace and they're at a different size and they're, they're, they're placed within this yoke to plow together, it'll, it'll at the very least start to rub you raw, but, but it could cause pain. It could create sores. It could even, I don't know, break a neck. 
And so to be unequally yoked is to, uh, is to have a, a goal in mind, but really not to be able to achieve the goal because you got two people together that are two things together that will not effectively reach or attain what you're pursuing. And if they do it, they'll just irritate each other and maybe possibly even kill one another. And so Paul's saying, do not be unequally yoked. You know, one of the interesting things, um, Matthew, or Mark, Mark chapter six, verse three uh, it refers to Jesus within that, the, the passage as the carpenter. Jesus, you know, the carpenter's uh, uh, son of Mary. You know, he, he talks about Jesus being a carpenter. And, and one of the words that it uses for Jesus uh, is, is the same word that we get the word for uh, tech, technical or technology, that word for carpenter. There's a few different words you could use for carpenter. Um, there's a general carpenter. But, but in terms of Jesus, they use this word for, for a technical carpenter. And it gives this idea that whatever Jesus was in carpentry, and people speculate a little bit as to what he could be, and I don't want to get into all of it, but, but one possibility that Jesus could have been is a, is a finesse carpenter, very specific in a, in a set of skills in order to uh, produce what it, what it was he decided to produce for his family and his carpentry work. And some people think and speculate that he might have even been a master craftsman at creating yokes. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus says to me, come to, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you because it's light and the burden is easy. And Jesus is saying, I know how to create what it is that you're intended for to help you live out that calling. So don't, don't take these religious yokes around me. Come listen to me. I have designed the perfect yoke for you to carry out the mission for which you have been called in Christ. That's how Jesus, and it gives the idea that maybe as a carpenter, that, that's, that was one of the things Jesus might have perfected is this idea of, of shaping a yoke perfectly. When you think about the types of animals that might be pulling a plow, intending to, to shape that yoke to fit that animal becomes important because you want that animal to be able to, to plow that entire field and you don't want them to be rubbed raw. You want them to be able to experience that according to the way that they're designed and, and to delight in a job well done. And, and Paul is saying the same thing to us in this passage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, what does this mean? Oftentimes when I, when I hear this passage taught I hear this taught in a way that's related to marriage. People tend to say, don't be unequally yoked, and they immediately dive into the idea of marriage because they think about where in a believer's life can you put a yoke upon yourself where, where you're not going to be traveling in the, the same direction as someone else, and then they'll, they'll infer from this passage, well, and they'll highlight marriage. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I think what's important is to say this. This passage is not talking about marriage. Jesus say, says, don't be unequally yoked. And what, what he means by that is, um, don't allow your life to be aligned in a way that will cause you to compromise the gospel. And whatever platform you can think in your life, you understand Jesus has called you to live for his glory. And so don't unnecessarily attach yourself to things that you know in the end will lead you to compromise who God has called you to be for the sake of the gospel, whatever it looks like. And some, some will infer to that, well, it could, be, it could be related to that marriage. And there's passages in the Bible that encourage you. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, um, it talks about a, a lady who's become a widow, but then Paul says this, when she's, as she's a widow, then she is free to be married or remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So Paul's saying, look, that's great if, if you find yourself as a widow and you want to get, you have the desire to be remarried, but when you get married, um, do it in the Lord. 
meaning God's got a goal for your life and, and the, one of the most foundational places for your life is started in the, in the home and you want that home to be a place of peace headed towards that direction because God has called your home to be a place that blesses the world. And so when you think about that, the foundation, the significance of the home, the, the, the family is a, a pillar to society. You wanna know how well a society's gonna do? Look how well families are doing. And, and the family becomes that first basis for, for nurturing children to then become a blessing to society. So it's important to have that home leveraged in that way. So when you marry, marry in the Lord. Now, now that brings people to this uh, position where they start to get concerned. Well, you know, in our home, we're spiritually divided. What do we do? Well, Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians 7, if, uh, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. What Paul is saying is your first mission field or your primary place to live for Christ in a home that may be divided becomes the home. Model Jesus. Let your family be blessed because of your relationship with Jesus. Let them see the goodness of Jesus in the way you live your life. That doesn't mean nag them. That doesn't mean attack them. That doesn't mean belittle them because they disagree with you. That means when you walk away from any experience they have with you, they should be refreshed by the sweetness of Jesus through you. So when you think about what it means to be unequally yoked, you can infer important relationships in life like marriage, but that's not the only thing this passage is talking about. This, this passage is, is encouraging us to set up our lives in the way in which we will have freedom to live for God's glory regardless of where we are. It doesn't mean you shun people from this world just because they don't follow Jesus. That's not what it means at all. But it's encouraging not to put yourself in a position of compromise for the sake of the gospel. And you can think in, in the church of Corinth, there were a, a number of places where, where that could exist or have been an easy part of the society. Like in, in Rome during that time period, in every, every region or major metropolitan area would have had a specific deity that that area would have been dedicated to. And so in Rome, they were a pluralistic society in what they worshiped. And so you would have your God based on where you lived. And if you traveled to another area and Corinth was a common place people would travel to, if you went to that area, even though you worshiped your God, if you didn't pay homage to the, the gods of Corinth, it, it would be considered a, a maligning or a, a, a disrespectful to the people of that area. And so you could think as a, as a believer going into, a, into this area being monotheistic and God saying that their only glory belongs to him when you would come to a region like that, being able to stand for the gospel without compromising that position would be important. Don't be unequally yoked. Or, or if you were to live in Corinth, all that the people would do within that town would be attached to some sort of, of pagan worship. You can imagine if you, if you were a master craftsman, you might have often crafted idols and those idols would be used for worships dedicated to the gods of, of Corinth or the goddesses of Corinth. And now all of a sudden being a believer in Christ, you realize you're contributing to people's desire to wanna to worship false gods and you're, you're a master craftsman. So what do you do? Do you continue to make those idols knowing that it promotes false worship? 
Or, or maybe you're a farmer and, and the animals that you farm are sold directly to the temple and in that temple they sacrifice those animals towards those false gods. Do you, do you continue to sell your animals to the temple? Or, or what about if you live in Corinth and, and you know when you go to the marketplace, the cheapest meat to buy is the meat of the animals that were sacrificed in the temple. And, and, and maybe that, that month in order to, to save for your family, you feel tempted to, to buy that meat sacrificed to the idols, but the people around you know that you're buying that meat and then it becomes a poor testimony to the sake, for the sake of Christ because in your home, you're eating meat sacrificed to, to pagan gods. Or what if you set up at the marketplace and the place that you choose to set up and the things that you create are for certain holidays related to activities that take place in the temple? Will you continue to make those products for those false gods, knowing it's in the celebration of something that's contrary to Jesus? What do you do? For the sake of the gospel, what, what do you do? A cost can bring a temptation to compromise. And Paul's encouragement for us is to be distinct. Guys, can I tell you, in our, in our culture today, I think how important this is. In our culture today, we've sort of gotten to the place of saying, look, unless you validate everything I do, you hate me. And we, we try to push everyone to agree with what everyone else wants. Like your, your purpose is to always validate me. That's the way the culture goes. But, but I think Christianity calls us to stand distinctly in saying, look, I don't need to validate everything people do. People do. Um, I am called to always love people no matter what because everyone's made in the image of God. But that doesn't mean I have to agree with what everyone does. And that's an important place to stand in as a believer because it lets our message shine. You know, some people get worried about the way that our culture is going and you know, I'm not real thrilled about it either, but, but I will say this, at the end of the day, the greater the darkness, the greater the opportunity the gospel has to shine. And so let it shine. Sometimes in a society that's just simply good, the gospel kind of gets lost in that. It gets, it gets replaced with moralism in a lot of ways. But, and it shouldn't, but, but when society starts to go dark or down a destructive path, it provides a beautiful place for God's people if they're willing to pay the cost to take a stand for Jesus. And it doesn't mean we're disrespectful to people when we do it. We're always, always, always loving to people never to the compromise of our message. In fact, one of the most unloving things you can do for people is to let your message be compromised. Because Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. It's the truth that transforms our life. And to step away from that, is to step away from this, the sacred message that changes the lives uh, of others. Do not be unequally yoked. I'll tell you every year, multiple times a year, I'll get this phone call. For the sake of unity, someone will call me and say, you know what we should do? We should combine our religious churches and have a worship service together. Of which I always have the same remark uh, to people when they, when they call me that, is I'll say to them, look, 
Um, I, I appreciate the sentiment that you have here and, and for the sake of unity or wanting some unity. And I will tell you, if there is an earthquake in our society, if there's a flood here in town, any, any natural disaster, you better believe shoulder to shoulder we're gonna be beside one another doing whatever we can to preserve life, protect life, and help people in need. But when it comes to worship, I can't do that. We're not gonna get under the same roof and hold our hands and sing kumbaya to two different gods because that's not pleasing to either of our beliefs. Our message is so important, I don't want it lost for the sake of unity because the question is, what are we unified behind? The message of who Jesus is becomes important for us. And so he's saying, look, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, and, and as he makes this kind of a statement, he, he then peppers it with just some questions to consider. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship agreement is there between light and darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? He's saying, look, what, is, what does Jesus and Satan have in common? That word accord is liter literally a symphony. You got two notes that aren't matching each other. And when you do that, it does not sound pretty. There is not harmony among it. This is not helpful. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You think what the, the privilege of that statement means, that God's presence dwells within you. And in, in this society, Paul's saying, look, people have built temples dedicated to a specific God all over the place. And they're not going to allow another God to be worshipped within the, that temple because it belongs to that God. And the same, same thing's true with you. That you belong to Jesus and are, are the, a temple of, of God and therefore, therefore you should allow your heart to, to strive with him and to be dedicated to him. In fact, Paul goes on from there in verse second half of verse 16. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? This is in Leviticus chapter 26, uh, verse 12. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's saying, look, in the Old Testament, remember what it says in Leviticus 26, that God wants to dwell among you and be with you and your heart given over to him. And then he, he, he quotes in the book of Isaiah, I think it's 52 verse 11. He says, verse 17, therefore go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Uh, then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Me, says the Lord Almighty. What he's quoting here in Isaiah is, is a passage where Israel's been taken because of their pagan idolatry. God has allowed them to be taken to captivity into Babylon. And now God is calling them back out of Babylon. They're taking what belongs to the Lord to set it apart again, to worship him. As if he's saying to Israel, look, or, or, or to, to Corinth, look, Israel has struggled throughout all of the Old Testament. God is saying from the book of Leviticus all the way to Isaiah, he's been calling his people to be separate, to be distinguished, to, to let their message be unique. It's, it's, it's crucial for life and human flourishing and, and eternity and relationship with God. And it's sacred to your identity. And don't, don't let this go. Don't let yourself be in a position where this is compromised as you think about how Israel has, has waged with this, this battle in, in their own life to, to be distinct. And I think, you, know, you think about the Old Testament, in, in my mind, no one did this more beautifully th than Daniel. In the book of Daniel, especially the first six chapters, talks about Daniel and his friends deported into Babylon or carried from Israel into Babylon. And it says in Daniel chapter one, verse eight, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. 
He just determined as he was carried away as a teenager that whatever he was going to stand for at the end of the day, it would be for the Lord and he would not compromise. In fact, Jeremiah, when it talks about being taken into captivity, he says this, thus, the Lord, the, 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 thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in, in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on this behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare, Verse eight, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So God's saying to them, look, go into the town in which you're a, a, a foreigner in this land and live to bless, live to bless. You're not shunning, you don't have to isolate, you don't have to cast stones at people. What I want you to do is influence for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the Lord, influence. And he even says, and sometimes people are even going to be tempted to teach you messages in verse 8 that are contrary to what Jesus is about or what the Lord is about. Don't listen to that. Take your stand. Take your stand and, and bless. I, uh, I've heard it often said there was a, a, a story of a, and I can't remember who, who wrote this or what book it was in, so I give credit to whoever the author is. I can no longer remember. But, but they, have a, they, have a, they have a story in this book where there were these two women that traveled, one, one from India to America and America to India. And, and they both got home and they reported what they found. And the American lady returned and they said, what was it like? And she said, you know, the country was beautiful, but, you know, the family that I stayed with, it, was, it felt dark to me because I, I went into their home and when I walked into their living room, all of their furniture was pointed in one direction towards this idol in the center of the room where, their, where incense was always burning. It was dedicated to... To their, to their God and they would sit around in their living room in, in dedication to this idol and they would converse one another and I just, I didn't like it. And, and then the lady from India, she returned back to her home and they said, what was it like? America was great. I enjoyed my time there but, but when I went into the family's home, it was so weird. It felt dark. They, I walked into their living room and their living room was all centered around one object. It was all, all focused on the television. They worshiped the television, right? I heard one person say once, you know, I don't watch TV for the same reason I don't drink from the toilet bowl. Um, you'll get it, right? Some of you did. There's a lot of garbage. We compromise and tolerate a lot of garbage. For what? The sake of entertainment? I mean, you take what we put on TV today and you go back 50 years and try to suggest that to people. They would wonder what's happened, right, to our country. When soft porn becomes the norm for entertainment in our homes, with the kind of garbage that we allow ourselves to see, do not be unequally yoked. What Jesus says matters. Let me move to point number three. Point number three is to say this. Be on mission. Be on mission. You could obsess about not being unequally yoked. I don't want to be unequally yoked all day long and still not hit the purpose for which you were created in Christ. 
So at the end of the day, what ultimately matters for us is not that we're simply not unequally yoked, but that we understand who we are in Jesus and want to live in light of that, that we live on mission to make a difference in this world, to be a, a blessing to people around us, that when they encounter us, that they see the goodness of Jesus and they desire more. So Paul encourages into this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. And the promises he's talking about are the quotes from Leviticus 26, Isaiah 52, that God's presence would be with his people calling us to come apart, that we could experience the goodness of, of God in our lives. We have a rela direct relationship with the Lord. That's what he's promising us. And since we have these promises, beloved, and that's a beautiful phrase to say right after those promises, isn't it? You have a relationship with God. And what does that mean? Man, he loves you. Loves you so much he's given his life for you that you could experience the freedom that you have in him and a new identity and old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, that you are beloved in Christ, which is a far greater calling than anything this world can give you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's talking about this word completion is perfection. To really strive for what God has called us to in him. Sometimes I'll have people ask me this question. Um, yeah, but how close can I get to the boundary of sin before God really technically calls it sin, right? Like, <laughs> how, how far along the edge can I walk? I just want to kind of be the, the back row Christian. Not, not any of you guys in the back row today, but you get what I mean, right? Like, I just want to be the, I just want to, I just kind of want to toe the line, which I kind of flirt with the world, but Jesus still counts me his. Where's that line? I, I, I want you to know, if you're asking that question in your relationship with the Lord, you're completely amiss to what God calls you to. The question isn't how good can I be where God counts me good enough. The question is that we should ask, ourselves is, how can I be near Jesus? How can I know Christ? It's not about where the line is at all. It's about how, what, what, what can I do to lay myself down more in order to, to experience the goodness of what God calls me to in these passages, since we have these promises as a beloved, how do I live in light of that? And Paul's saying, be on mission. And here's why he reminds us, because over time, Mission drifts and vision fades. Over time, your mission will drift. I mean, the world can sometimes just wear you out. But we need to remind ourselves and be reminded constantly of the importance of what, of what we're doing for the sake of Christ. Costs can bring compromise. But Paul's encouraging us to something completely different. Um, let, me, let me illustrate with this last, this last point. Um, 1982. I almost want to ask how many of you are alive, but I'll leave that alone for a minute. January 13th, 1982. There was an Air Florida flight traveling from Washington, D.C. to Florida. But it, it didn't make it very far. It ended up clipping a bridge taking out four vehicles and their drivers and plummeting into the Potomac River. 79 people were on board. 74 of them did not make it. Four of them were rescued by a, a helicopter that flew over it and dropped the line that people could grab it and uh, they were lifted over to the shore and, and dropped off. But there was one lady. Her name was uh, Priscilla Torado. By the time the helicopter got to her, she was the fifth person in that icy water, and she no longer had the grip strength 
to, to grab hold of the rope to be lifted out and carried to safety. And on that shore, there were hundreds of people that have now gathered around watching the events unfold as the plane was sinking into the water and, and one lady still remained. And then all of a sudden, this guy named Len, Lenny Skutnik dove into the icy water, made his way over to the lady, grabbed a hold of her, and swam back through the ice to the shore, and both of them survived. Afterwards, they asked Lenny, they gave him a, an award for being a hero, but they asked him, out of all the people standing on the side of the shore, what compelled you to jump into the middle of that ice in order to rescue this lady? And Lenny looked at it, and he just said, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I just I saw a lady in need, and I didn't even think. I just knew I had to act. While cost can bring compromise. Guys, something that Lenny taught us in this story is that crisis can also bring out conviction. Crisis can bring out conviction. At the end of the day, when you know what the stakes are and you know the difference that you can make, sometimes we're compelled to dive into those waters. When I think about where we're at as God's people and the message that we carry and the opportunity it brings for others, how precious your position in Jesus is. A crisis brings out our convictions. And I think there is no greater battle in this world than the consequences of sin and what it means towards our relationship with God as human beings in general. But whatever the reason is, this morning you find yourself here looking at a passage of scripture to remind yourself of the significance of Jesus. And when I think about you and your position in Christ in this moment, I think about how, how beautiful an opportunity then it presents, not only for your life, but what your family needs. That you would uncompromisingly seek Jesus. That they would be blessed because of that, even if they don't walk with him. That they could see Jesus emulated in your life because they, they see within you how important that message is. And not only your family, what about, what about our, our community around us? And what about our country? Crisis brings about our convictions. And it's that conviction of Jesus that we need to see the significance in our lives to never compromise. But to walk and strive for unity as, as God's people, to be distinct, and to live on mission. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.